kids in the room, have, um, have your parents ever looked at you and said, quick, we gotta get the house ready. Fluff up the pillows, tidy up the living room, make your beds, company's coming, right? Your grandma and grandpa are coming over. Your cousins are coming over. We gotta get this house ready. Has that ever happened? See some people looking at their parents now like, maybe I shouldn't make the right facial expression. Yeah, yeah, okay, thank you. So there's this video that went around social media a little while ago that was like a guy maybe in his 20s kind of poking fun at his mom, you know, and he's, it's all this absurd stuff like, you know, if your bed's not already made, throw it away, you know, like fluff off the couch, fluff off the cushions. We can't let people know that we sit, right? Like this absurd kind of like we, we people need to look, feel like they're walking into a museum when they walk into our house. We get things ready in proportion to the kind of hospitality that we wish to show. If it's a big event, a family gathering, or if there's an honored guest arriving, then there's a lot of preparation that has to be made. When Nikki and I were in college, the king of Sweden, the king and queen, queen of Sweden came to Gustavus. And it was a whole thing. I mean, it was like the whole campus had to be prepared that uh, the king and queen are the last to enter a room and the first to leave. Everyone stands until they enter, and then when they sit, you can sit. It was this whole thing. I mean, there was all of this protocol and pomp and circumstance and all kinds of stuff, right? And we were like, I remember thinking at the time, I got no king but Jesus. So, also, this is America. We kind of fought a war over that. Anyway, <laughs> that was in my, you know, um, more impetuous days, I suppose. So, what kind of preparation was needed for God's arrival? What kind of preparation had to happen? I mean, we're talking much more than beds being made and pillows being fluffed. For Yahweh to come on the scene and redeem his people. Mark begins his gospel with this quote from Isaiah 40, which was our Old Testament lesson. In order to communicate that the good news about Jesus Christ is that in him, all of the Old Testament hopes for God's people to be restored, for their sins to be dealt with, for their sad days to be over, for God to just speak tenderly to them from now until forever. In Jesus, all of those things found their fulfillment. That's why Mark says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as the prophet Isaiah says, a voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. But, you know, if you look at this bulletin that we gave you, I actually didn't mean to print the gospel for you. I was trying to save some space, but here we are. It's a happy accident. What about this whole, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. That's not in Isaiah 40. What's going on with that? That's actually from Malachi 3.1. Look, I am sending my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come into his temple. 
The messenger of the covenant whom you look for so eagerly is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Why does Mark make it look like both of these come from Isaiah when they definitely don't? That's really more of a question we're going to address Wednesday morning at 11 a.m. at our Bible study right downstairs in the church basement. Or uh, I'll be sure to mention that in the video that goes uh, on our Facebook group afterwards, summarizing all of that. For now, here's what Mark is doing. He's making sure that we understand that John the baptizer was not just some guy who happened to have a religious thing going on and people were drawn to him and he kind of accidentally just happened to be there right before Jesus came on the scene. John the baptizer was the guy getting everything ready for the king to arrive. He was the one preparing people. He was foretold in the Old Testament just as Jesus was. So what did John do? He prepared the way for Jesus' first coming through this preaching of repentance. Isaiah 40 says that, what does this voice in the wilderness say? He says, prepare the way of the Lord. And then he says this, fill in the valleys, level the mountains and hills, straighten the curves and smooth out the rough places. In the ancient world, roads were pretty wretchedly constructed and they were not very well kept. Not like this nice tar road we have out here. And I think we all, you know, I mean, who, who among us who can drive, or maybe if you got your farm license, you know this too, I suppose. Um, when there's a fresh pavement laid down, oh, this is nice. You got about two weeks before you start to have cracks and bumps and, you know, everything else in it. It's nice to drive on a smooth road. Well, if you don't have any of that technology, how are you going to make the way for a king to arrive? This generally involved like people actually moving earth to fill in big valleys and right, like blasting away without dynamite, right? With hard labor, making a path for a king to arrive. This is a thing that would actually happen. And the prophet Isaiah is using this picture to say, make the Lord's way straight. All this stuff we do for earthly kings, we got to do spiritually because God is coming to us. John called people to fill in the valleys that held secret sin with confession and righteousness. He called people to level their mountains of pride and their hills of self-righteousness. Get rid of all that stuff. He called people to straighten out their two-tongued, duplicitous, deceitful, lying ways and to smooth out the coarse and crude areas of their lives. Why? Because the Lord was coming. And he sealed this repentance by baptizing with water. This is not the same kind of baptism that we have in Christ. But this was a washing, like washing of the body. The, the exact thing that our catechism says that our baptism is not, just a washing away of dirt, is what John's baptism was. Cleaning of the body as an outward sign that people had repented and that they were seeking the Lord's forgiveness. In this way, the promise of Isaiah 40, verse 5, would be fulfilled. After all of this preparatory work, after all the valleys were filled in and the mountains were made level, then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. The glory of Yahweh will be revealed. And all people will see it together. The Lord has spoken. So now let's think about what Jesus does. He baptizes with what? And the Holy Spirit. 
John announced, someone is coming soon who is greater than I am. So much greater that I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. Right? This is, this, is, this is what slaves would do. This is what servants would do when guests would come into the house. They would bend down and take off guests' shoes and then wash their feet. John says, I, he is so much mightier than I that the humblest duty that one could do, perform for another, I'm not even worthy to do for him. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Fast forward to Acts. This is after Jesus' resurrection, before he ascends to heaven. He's talking to his disciples, and he says, John baptized with water. He calls back to that. And he says, but in just a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? He replied, the father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit being poured out was, throughout the whole Old Testament, a thing that was promised, that it was, it was associated with the end times, with God's arrival to set everything right, to defeat all his enemies. There was this prophecy, it's from the book of Joel, in those days, in the, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. In the Old Testament, just a few people every now and then had a little bit of an outpouring of the spirit. Not like what you have. We have something that the saints in the Old Testament did not. The Holy Spirit upon us, abiding in us. So that's why the disciples are like, hey, the Holy Spirit's going to come on us. Does this mean the time has come? Jesus deflects the focus away from this obsession with the end times to how the Holy Spirit empowers the church to be witnesses for him. He says, the power of the Holy, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit isn't just a sign of the times. It's so that you are equipped and empowered to be my witnesses. Here in Jerusalem, yes. In all the surrounding countryside. In Samaria, among all those people that you hate. And to the very ends of the earth. To Mulkey Township. So that the gospel of Jesus Christ would go out to all the world. That's why the Holy Spirit comes with power. That's why Jesus baptizes us with the Spirit. And that very thing, the gospel going out to the end of the earth, is what Jesus said would precede the end. From Matthew 24, the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it, and then the end will come. So just as John the baptizer prepared the way for Jesus' first arrival, by preaching repentance, by getting people ready for Jesus to come. We in the church prepare the way for Jesus' second coming by spreading the good news about Jesus to the ends of the earth. And it's been a long, long time since all of this stuff happened. So long that it can feel more like story hour in here than real life. You can't be faulted for feeling like these stories from the Gospels, these texts from Isaiah, they feel like very, very, very distant from us, from our lives today. That's why today's epistle reading is what it is from Second Peter. 
You must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day with the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. He's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some say he is. He's being patient for your sake because he doesn't want anyone to be, do you remember? He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed. Instead, he wants, excuse me, he wants everyone to come to the same thing that John the baptizer was calling people to. Repentance. Repentance. Why is the end not yet come? Because Jesus wants more people to repent, to be prepared for his coming. John's whole ministry was just a preparation for Jesus' ministry. John's baptism didn't give the Holy Spirit, didn't give the new birth like your baptism did. John's call to repentance didn't precede the terrible day of the Lord. Rather, it preceded Jesus coming among us to die for our sins. Contrast that with our calls for the world to repent. Calls that you hear here and that we share through the church in our relationships, in our places of work, in our classrooms, whatever. When Jesus comes, it's not for another ministry where people can choose to reject him or people can accept him. When he comes, everybody, even the people who are mad about him coming, even the people who spent their whole lives acting like he doesn't exist, like this is all some fairy tale, everybody is going to bow the knee. And for some, it's going to be too late. He's returning for judgment. He's returning for that terrible day of the Lord. Like Peter says, he's going to set the heavens on fire. The elements will melt away in the flames and everything on the earth is going to be found to deserve judgment. That sounds pretty horrible, doesn't it? But remember that all the things that will be burned away on that day are things that deserve it. They're things that deserve to be destroyed. That ought to pass away in God's righteous judgment. Things that you will celebrate passing away under God's wrath. Even if it's hard to believe it now. Think about it like this. Every sorrow, every grief, every injustice that you've suffered, that your loved ones have suffered, everything obviously wrong that somebody along the way with enough power or influence just kind of swept under the rug, made it disappear instead of righteousness actually being done or justice being done. Everything you've suffered everything your children have suffered, everything bad will be burned away. All suffering, all pain, all death, every tear will be wiped away. All of your sins, their effects on you, their effects on everybody else, all of sin's effects, the effects of the curse will be undone. I said this last year around this time, too, I think. (laughs) And I'm not going to sing it like I did last year, for obvious reasons, perhaps. But that Christmas hymn, Joy to the World, the Lord has come. 
let earth receive her king, right? I don't remember which stanza it is. I still have kind of, you know, sick brain. But there's part of the text of that hymn. He comes to make his blessings flow. Where? Far as the curse is found. The curse from Genesis 3 that we all suffer as humans has gone deep into the human condition, deep into this world. It's in the roots of the trees. It's in the air we breathe. It's in our hearts. It's in our minds. It's in our bodies. It's everywhere. And there is no place that the curse is that Jesus will not make his blessings flow to erase it, to give you back what you lost, to undo the hurt, to bind up your broken hearts, to restore what was broken, to make everything new. That's what Jesus is going to do. So it sounds intense, that last day that's going to come like a thief when everything's going to be burned away with fire. But for you believers, it's a good day. It's a good day, one that we will greet happily. Peter goes on. We are looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth he has promised. A world filled with God's righteousness instead of one filled with our sin. And so, dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, these days of Advent, come Lord Jesus. While we are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. It's the same call to repentance. Fill in the valleys. Level the hills and mountains. Straighten out the curves. Smooth out the rough places. Not by your own might, not by your own work, of course. By God's power. Through his word, through the sacraments. The gospel of Jesus Christ begins with preparation by means of repentance with John the baptizer. And it ends with preparation by means of repentance. It ends, meaning us here now in these last days. We turn to the Lord. We confess our sins. We receive his forgiveness. We're strengthened by his word and by his sacraments. And all of this makes us ready for something and someone far greater than the king of Sweden or a family Christmas that our family happens to be hosting at our house. We're preparing to greet our God returning to us. Turn again with me to this banner. Last week, the first candle, we said that was a watch. This week, the second week of Advent, what does that second candle say? Prepare. Prepare. By our Lord's grace, we will be prepared for his coming because we have heard the call and by the gospel, the Holy Spirit has called us and enlightened us with his gifts. All praise eternal son to thee whose advent sets thy people free. Amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.